You, you are, now are now tuned into the Fusebox Radio Broadcast with DJ Fusion and John Judah. Syndicated worldwide to bring real, real black radio back <laughs> to the masses. All right, everybody. One, two, one, two. What's going on? You're now in tune to another session of the syndicated Fusebox radio broadcast with DJ Fusion and John Judah. Since 1998, bringing you the best of what we call 21st century black radio to the masses on your FM dial, internet radio station, podcast, and website. You got myself in the mix this week, DJ Fusion. My partner, John Judah, is currently doing a little bit of vacay. He's traveling right now. Shouts out to him. He'll be back on the lines and stuff next week. But he left a mix for us to get on and popping, so that can definitely be what's good in regard to our musical diversity of old and new school joints, hip-hop, soul, funk, jazz, reggae, rock the entire nine, as well as a little bit of news and commentary from our end and from various guest commentators. You can check out all the information about how we rock and roll either at our official blog site, blackradioinfact.com, or our official MySpace, myspace.com slash fuseboxradio, F-U-S-E-B-O-X-R-A-D-I-O. We're also on a lot of the social network sites. You can get us at Twitter or Facebook at twitter.com slash fuseboxradio, F-U-S-E-B-O-X-R-A-D-I-O, um, facebook.com slash fuseboxradio, youtube.com slash fuseboxradio, and so forth and so on. Or just do that lovely Google or internet search and you can find us out. And um, check out our weekly podcast. It's also on blackradioinfact.com and linked over there. Or you can go to Podomatic, our server. Shouts out to them. And just go type in Radio as one word, .podomatic.com to get direct access to the site on the web. Or go to iTunes, Zoom, or any other type of podcatcher and you should be able to access our show through that means. I'm pretty glad to be here another week, ready to bring in some good stuff and make things happen. Um, we deeply appreciate all of our broadcast affiliates. We appreciate all of our listeners, regardless of which way you do it. Um, we're very happy to be a part of the international broadcasting community. We appreciate all of our fans from wherever they are. We appreciate all of our fans' commentary. Uh, we appreciate all of our fans um, editorializing, um, hitting us up, and all that good stuff. We also appreciate the music community that hits us up with great joints all the time, from the independent circuit to the major label circuit. So, you know, we're here, we're live, ready to make it happen, ready to get things on and rolling. This week we're rolling a little different due to the fact that Judah isn't here, and also a whole lot of um, news has happened I'm going to only briefly touch base on. Um, we have a segment that's going to touch base on that this particular week and um, go from there. Um, we have a regular Black Agenda Report segment with Lynn Ford and all of them. Shouts out to them. We also are going to put on a Democracy Now! Um, segment um, around the second hour of the show that covers some very major topics I thought were relevant to have it within the past week. From the travesty of the sentencing of the policeman that shot Oscar Grant um, a citizen going about his business in Oakland, California, young black man, um, in the head while he was handcuffed. And then they were trying to say it was supposed to be a taser or something like that. I can only say just as will be done on a higher plane in that regard. I definitely have condolences for his friends and family and others. And just for the black community in general, sometimes life is just not really respected um, on, a, on a plane because of your racial 
or um, social class and this case is an unfortunate example of that as well as the horribly poor coverage the mainstream media did um, it wasn't for the internet and um, being able to access the local feeds people around my way on the east coast of the united states might not have barely known anything i'm um, big up to all the independent media outlets who are covering um all different types of news and commentary and putting out different um information r.i.p the sugar minnow um father of one of the fathers of dance hall reggae the dope um, roots reggae as well the bp oil spill is still um utterly insane check our twitter feed for um, some of the updated information with that and the um, horrible effects it's having right now on people on an environmental basis, um, economic basis, and um, other various things that are going on in that regard. Um, Shouts out to everybody who's been putting out great um, albums this summer. There's been some pretty nice hip-hop albums dropping. Shouts out um, to Big Boy. Shouts out to Eminem. I'll kind of Janelle Monae's album because she rhymes a lot on that album as a hip-hop joint. Shout out to her. And um, everybody who's doing their thing. You know, I can list artists all day who are doing stuff hot from the independent circuit on down. And, um, yeah, that's um, my really, really quick summary in regards to things. Um, a lot of details about some of these cases are going to be covered in the Democracy Now! segment. Shouts out to Amy Goodman and all the great staff that works with Democracy Now! You can check them out at democracynow.org. And um, let us know how you feel. Um, on our blackradiosback.com website, there is contact information. Um, we're kind of testing this out, but it just happened to fit in at a perfect time. Let us know. Do you want to have um, the Democracy Now! Um, segment put on? It's about 45 minutes to an hour usually. We're thinking about maybe doing it bi-monthly or monthly depending on how scenarios go. But regardless, definitely listen to that. Definitely listen to the old and new school music we're going to have popping off on this week's show. And yep, we're going to keep it moving and um, grooving for all of my um, listeners in the Baltimore, Maryland area. Fusebox Radio will be representing that Artscape. Check out artscape.org for more details. Shouts out to the Authentic Contemporary Art Gallery crew and peoples. The flyer is up on the blackradioisback.com website. It's a free event. It's going to be a part of a lot of great arts things that are going on. So definitely check that out this July. And yeah, we're going to keep it moving here. Old, new school, all of that. News commentary, bringing some balance back to the black radio spectrum. And just the radio spectrum in general on as much of a non-sellout basis that we can possibly do. Which, you know, we're going to do our best to do no matter what. So, we're going to keep it moving here. Fusebox Radio, DJ Fusion, John Judah, 21st Century Black Radio for the Masses, Intelligent Radio, Fun Radio, Green Radio. All right. Please. Now listening to Fusebox Radio, DJ Fusion.
real tight. But listen up today. You have to listen to each and every single word I have to say because. Remains fraud, remains fraud. You hear me? But listen up today. You have to listen to each and every single word I have to say because. Remains fraud, remains fraud. You hear me? Now I got a second brother. Me and this one was closer. Made me a little tomboy, like he was supposed to. Carrying up the plates, blowing weed in my face. Irresponsible to death. Parents staying on his case. Probably 'cause he wanted to be the baby in the family. Drinking with his friends, macking up. Mommy carry little halfway crook. Getting crazy on the mic. Wasn't really in the rap, but this is now I'm tired. Used to tell me all the time, don't wet nothing. By this time next year, we gon' be dumb rich. That's when I heard the ill. My physical got killed just a couple of weeks after signing a record deal. Now somebody got the buzz, and after getting a little duffing on the block, round the clock, it ain't seen nothing. Never seen a brother more determined or eager. Moms and pops couldn't see it. Now we not gon' see it either. Well, listen up today. You have to listen to each and every single word I have to say because rock niggas remain strong, remain strong. Follow the rules. You hear me?
family is warrior fame. Weapons we train for tussles of hustlers plain. Patterns like jet planes, exploiting the lane. I rise to the case, screaming at the top of my lungs and spitting your face. Cunning and great for meltdowns. I'm the answer in the crisis. Ring it down, load the digital devices. Still one of the nicest. Use many spices. My school is inviting for scholarships and writing. All screws tighten like construction. I'm well built. The seat stays chiseled and the frame won't tilt. Firm rock solid. I'm hawk brawling. Talk solid against like guns and hands of alcoholics. Everybody just listen. What y'all expected? Nothing but some real shit. It's that hip hop shit filled with anger. Classic material the others ain't making. Trade blows with labels. I'm winning every round. Cause the fans wish for the lethal spit that is renowned. Clowns. Ruining the namesake Cap saying they up next A cause that's a piece of cake Lightweight Cruiser Step in the ring I'll show you why I'm nicknamed the Bruce The infamous sound wave in the booth Auto-tune is dead like having a gold tooth 2009, death of the program So continue with newest ish for you to scan Introduction is more than the beginning Cause in the half mark, you'll be hoping for no ending This new world is just a fraction to come Brace yourself and strap down and prepare for the fun Returners on support and manning the gun sits Drill sergeant is me with open talent worth the risk this is Milk D. Right now, you're listening to the Fuse Box Radio with DJ Fusion. I gets money.
right here on the Fuse Box Radio. DJ Fusion. We're going with desire. We're going with desire. As an humble lion. Going with desire in the morning. Sprout on the trumpet's gonna sound. The elders gonna meet me. The elders come to greet me. Going to Zion. I'm going to Zion. Going to Zion on the morning train. On that morning train. Why are we up? No, we can't. Could I never come over? In a Mount Zion. In a Mount Zion. Why I'm going to Africa in the morning. Bang, bagadang, the jump is gonna sound. My brethren come to meet me. This thing's come to greet me. Going to Africa. I'm going to Africa. Going to Africa on the morning train. On that morning train. Going to Africa. Boy, oh. So long we're down in this trip, Babylon. Full time we leave out this land. Too much frustration, antagonization. We're leaving Babylon, leaving Babylon, leaving Babylon on the morning train, on the morning train. Zion, Zion bound, Zion, we want to go home, boy. You're now listening to Fusebox Radio with DJ Fusion. Control. 
Oh, oh. 
4. Right here on the Fuse Box Radio. DJ Fuse.
listening to Fusebox Radio with DJ Fuse. Oh, what the hole? Everybody hurts. 
Dirty, uh, you know, dirty, uh, you know, dirty, uh, come on, dirty, dirty, come on, dirty, Five foot wonder MC light. Better check out DJ Fusion. Which now said can lead to a bad situation It could've all been fixed, but now we just waiting We could've all been cool, it's just a conversation Just a conversation, but now we having a Yeah, in communication Which now said can lead to a bad situation It could've all been fixed, but now we just waiting We could've all been cool, it's just a conversation Just a conversation, but now we having a not told somebody something you should have said You ain't wanna argue or know what's in their head Put you to the side, don't resolve them issues No news is good news until it just You can't take it, can't look at them Can't hang, can't fake it True steady stand you down, you can't face it This your own medicine, you can't taste it Laced it, poison the whole relationship Man, you know what you did in 99 Back when we were just kids And you fronted me off in front of that chin But I played it off and gave it a grin 2002, you were did it again when I was hollering at Tasha and used to push a Saturn. I pulled up to the party, you was pointing and laughing. Top block and showing off the Chevy and bragging. At what point in time can we call it a pattern? Cause just the other day you let the same thing happen. Captain, I don't wanna go and expose this. Plus, I ain't the type to keep bringing up old ish, but I don't wanna smell some ish, call it roses. I'm just trying to go on and close this chapter. He looked at me, said, Let me say something. Up to now, you ain't said nothing. Yeah, it communicate. We not saying can lead to a bad situation It could have all been fixed, but now we just waiting We could have all been cool, it's just a conversation Just a conversation, but now we having a Yeah, in communication We not saying can lead to a bad situation It could have all been fixed, but now we just waiting We could have all been cool, it's just a conversation Just a conversation, but now we having a can't talk to a person, don't get involved with a person that'll attack you. Both of y'all will end up on Judge Matthews, arguing about phone bills or rent this past due. Used to be your best friend, now you just that dude. I used to be that dude. If you owe me money, why well, I got to ask you? When I'm bash you, call your cell phone and you put me to the voicemail. Oh, I harass you? Yeah, in communication. But I'ma say something now because it's escalating. And I don't wanna holler, but I feel like Will Smith in pursuit. Look, I'ma need that nine dollars regardless of all this nonsense don't say you will if you can't keep a promise be honest at least be honest because if it wasn't me you'd be floating in a pile shit wait let me just calm down relax get myself together before you make me yeah in communication what's not said can lead to a bad situation it could have all been fixed but now we just waiting we could have all been cool with just a conversation just a conversation but now we having a yeah in communication was not said to lead to a bad situation We could've all been fixed, but now we just waiting We could've all been cool, which is a conversation Just a conversation, but now we having a
Yo, check this out. This is Chuck the Public Enemy. You're now listening to Fusebox Radio with DJ Fusion. Harder than you think. In our recent discussion with author Frank Wilderson about his new book, Red, White, and Black, Cinema and the Structure of U.S. Antagonism, he described a situation where a rabid philosophy of anti-blackness demands that the nation's popular culture depict black people as non-human. Not for material gain, as many suggest. It is beyond that. James Baldwin described this by saying that I exist so that you can know that you are alive. Or when a white man calls me nigger, I ask why he needs me to be one. This is why Wilderson chooses the philosophical description of antagonism, which means a permanency that cannot be dealt with using our current set of tools. This is not an issue of legislation or some failing of an otherwise perfect democracy to be corrected by a vote. 
Wilderson is asking us to think beyond the current world, which has defined blackness permanently as the slave, the non-human, whose presence can only be to serve and define the presence of others. We are, as Malcolm X said, America's problem, but not simply as an issue of economic exploitation, or as Wilderson says, a threat to some aspects of the world. We are a threat to the cohesion of the world itself. And this is why he says antagonisms have no conceptual resolution in the way that conflicts do. And this is also why Franz Fanon, quoting Ami Césaire, said that we must begin to destroy the world. Wilderson's examples include popular films such as Monsters Ball and Antoine Fisher. But hip-hop and R&B lovers need not wait for the more intermittent film industry to see Wilderson's points in action. Each week, and with a volume and popularity unmatched even by film, popular rap music becomes a bludgeon in the hands of this philosophy of anti-blackness. And were we to do Wilderson's point justice, more of us would highlight with more regularity the fact that the portrayal of blackness in popular culture is not about making money, it is not simply a business decision, and it is certainly not because it is what we want. Any given week, only two corporations, Universal Music Group and Sony Music, own minimally 80% and usually upwards of 95% of all the songs making the top 20 spins list on radio. Through ownership and selective promotion via payment to radio stations, these companies assure that their songs, and only their songs, are played as many as 20 to 40,000 times per song per month. This means a Universal Music Group or Sony Music song is playing on commercial radio every minute of every hour of every single solitary day. This means no time for news and certainly no time for other songs. Look up the lyrics of any of these songs and the function they play is clear. This week's most played song is by Sony artist Usher with lyrics that are only about a woman dropping it and popping it on a dance floor. It was played 6,859 times last week alone. And again, this is not about money. Reviewing the annual reports of these companies shows that in 2009, while Universal Music Group may be the largest music company in the world, it accounted for only 14% of its parent company's total revenues. The second largest, Sony Music, only accounted for 6% of the overall sales for Sony Corporation. And by the way, the third largest music company, Warner Music Group, is run by three private equity groups who combined manage funds of well over $110 billion. They don't need popular culture for money. They need it to protect their sense of self and the just nature of their exploitation. This is why we don't see different kinds of films being promoted and why rap albums that have a different content are never on the radio. Most Def has been in films that have grossed hundreds of millions of dollars around the world, but he is never on the radio. Common also has a budding movie career and has been an Artist of the Year award recipient, but he too is rarely on the radio. It has nothing to do with quality of the art or what an audience is clamoring for. Audiences want what is promoted. Dead Prez has a new album out and it's free, but it also has songs calling for radical political organization and that encourage rappers to study Malcolm Garvey Huey, and therefore will never be on the radio. Not because people don't want to hear it or won't buy it, but culture truly in the hands of the enslaved means more Malcolm's Garvey's Hueys and Harriet's Asadas and Claudia's. It means an end to the world as we know it and an end to the world as it is known to those espousing a prevailing non-human anti-blackness. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Jared Ball. Online, go to www.blackagendareport.com. You're now listening to Fusebox Radio with DJ Fuse. We were stripped from our land. They took our family, delivered the book in the park, put the ball in the place, the mother so gay so, then they had the child.
fight on my people, treated unequal. That's why I'm facing, I gotta face this. So I speak out, and those who don't like it, they freak out. And they label me a racist. I'm keep stalking me and brothers like y'all.
Pacifica. This is Democracy Now! My son was murdered. He was murdered. He was murdered. He was murdered. My son was murdered. And there and the law has not held the officer accountable the way that he should have been held accountable. Outrage in Oakland. The white transit officer who shot and killed Oscar Grant is found guilty, not of murder, but of involuntary manslaughter. The officer shot the 22-year-old African-American as he lay face down on a train platform. Hundreds protest in downtown Oakland. Scores are arrested. We'll get a report from the streets. But first, you've certainly heard of the Deepwater Horizon. But did you know there are more than 27,000 abandoned wells in the Gulf? Are they leaking? Have they been inspected? Then two weeks before BP's oil explosion in the Gulf, its massive oil refinery in Texas City began spewing thousands of pounds of toxic chemicals into the skies. We'll talk to a ProPublica reporter who investigated the story and a photographer who was harassed by BP security and detained by local police. And finally, Broke USA, from Pawn Shops to Poverty, Inc., how the working poor became big business. We'll speak with author Gary Riplin. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A federal appeals court has rejected the Obama administration's attempt to reinstate a six-month ban on deepwater oil drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. The ban was imposed in May, but a U.S. district judge with extensive energy industry financial ties struck it down last month. On Thursday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans refused to stay the lower court decision. The Interior Department's expected to revise the ban order to address issues raised by the courts. A U.S. district judge in Massachusetts has ruled the federal ban on same-sex marriage is unconstitutional because it interferes with the state's right to define marriage. The ruling came in the cases of two separate challenges to the so-called Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA, of 1996. It applies only to Massachusetts, but could have broader implications if upheld on appeal. In California, a former Bay Area police officer has escaped a full conviction for the 2009 killing of the unarmed African-American passenger Oscar Grant. On Thursday, the officer, Johannes Messerly, was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter, but was acquitted on the more serious charges of second-degree murder and voluntary manslaughter, both of which carry longer sentences. Videotape of the killing shows Messerly shooting Grant in the back while he lay face down on a subway platform. Members of Grant's family immediately denounced the verdict. Scores of people were arrested in Oakland last night after protests broke out. We'll have more on the Oscar Grant verdict after headlines. The Pentagon's new nominee to head the U.S. Central Command is expected to draw scrutiny for a controversial record that includes outlandish comments and alleged disregard for Iraqi civilian life. On Thursday, Marine General James Mattis was tapped to replace General David Petraeus, who took over as the top U.S. commander in Afghanistan following the ouster of General Stanley McChrystal last month. As head of Camp Pendleton's 1st Marine Division in Iraq, Mattis played a key role in the two U.S. assaults on Fallujah in 2004. The assaults killed hundreds, if not thousands, of Fallujah residents, displaced thousands more, and destroyed much of the city. Mattis later dismissed almost all the charges against eight accused Marines involved in the November 2005 massacre of 24 unarmed Iraqi civilians in the town of Haditha. Of the eight Marines originally charged in the case, only one still faces prosecution. 
in February of 2005, Mattis was reprimanded after he told a public event he enjoys fighting in places like Afghanistan because, quote, it's fun to shoot some people. He said, quote, you know, it's a hell of a hoot. I'll be right up front with you. I like brawling. In Pakistan, at least 50 people have been killed and over 100 wounded in a double suicide bombing in a northwest tribal region. Two attackers detonated their explosives outside a government office. It was one of the deadliest attacks to hit Pakistan this year. The U.S. and Russia have completed what's been described as the largest prisoner swap between the two sides since the Cold War era. On Thursday, 10 alleged Russian spies were deported from the U.S. shortly after pleading guilty to charges of acting as unregistered foreign agents. In return, Russia freed four Russians who had been jailed on charges of spying for the West. The European Parliament's approved the resumption of a controversial data-sharing program that allows the U.S. to monitor millions of international financial transactions. The records have been obtained through SWIFT, which directs trillions of dollars in international bank transfers each day. The program has been accused of violating privacy rights since coming to light in 2006. European Union lawmakers had rejected a proposed extension of the program earlier this year, despite heavy Obama administration pressure. But on Thursday, the EU parliament backed a new deal that negotiators say will allow oversight of U.S. investigators involved in the program. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has wrapped up a visit to the United States following his White House meeting with President Obama. On Thursday, Netanyahu told an audience at the Council on Foreign Relations here in New York that Israel, quote, has done enough to address Palestinian grievances and said the Palestinian Authority should drop their conditions for resumption of peace talks. I decided, unlike any previous government, to freeze the construction and new settlements for a 10-month period to encourage the Palestinians to enter the peace talks. So far, seven months have passed. Uh, they haven't come in. They should come in. They should have come in yesterday. They should have come in 12 months ago, seven months ago. But we should not waste uh, any time. Israel has only partially frozen settlement construction, and Palestinians have insisted on a complete freeze before talks resume. Outside of Netanyahu's speech, protesters said the Israeli government should be held to account for war crimes in Gaza and ongoing settlement expansion on the West Bank. Another aid ship, meanwhile, could be making its way to Gaza as early as today. A Libyan state charity group says it's preparing a cargo vessel loaded with 2,000 tons of supplies to depart from Greece. The sailing would come just over a month after Israeli forces killed nine people aboard the Free Gaza Movement's Freedom Flotilla in international waters. In Canada, the supervisory board of the Toronto Police Department has launched a probe into police conduct during last month's G20 summit. Over 1,000 people were arrested in the crackdown. Police have faced multiple allegations of misconduct, including beatings, unlawful jailings, improper sexual contact and threats of rape. At least 16 people are said to remain in detention nearly two weeks after most of the arrests. One of the jail protesters, Jaggi Singh, is a well-known Canadian social justice activist who was forced to surrender this week. Local officials in Toronto, meanwhile, have acknowledged the massive security fence built for the summit has cost double its initial estimate. The final bill for the six-mile barrier that cut off large parts of downtown Toronto was $9.4 million. 
A recent study shows median wages for both high school and college graduates have fallen over the last decade. According to the Economic Policy Institute, the years 2000 to 2009 mark, quote, a prolonged period of wage stagnation. Earnings for high school graduates dropped an average of $3 per week, and earnings for college graduates dropped an average of $5 per week. The wage stagnation preceded the current recession, which, with wages falling even as the nation's economy expanded from 2002 to 2007. Speaking at a factory in Kansas City Thursday, President Obama said he thinks the U.S. economy is headed to recovery. And I've said since I took office that my administration will not rest until every American who is able and ready and willing to work can find a job, and a job that pays a decent wage and has decent benefits to support a family. We're not there yet. We've got a long way to go. But what is absolutely clear is we're moving in the right direction. A new analysis shows wealthier Americans have a higher rate of mortgage defaults than the rest of the population. According to The New York Times, more than one in seven homeowners with loans exceeding a million dollars are seriously delinquent. By contrast, the delinquency rate for mortgages below the one million mark is about one in 12. The U.S. has denied a visa to a prominent Colombian television journalist to attend a fellowship at Harvard University. The journalist, Holman Morris, has been highly critical of outgoing Colombian President Álvaro Uribe, a key U.S. ally. Morris has helped document Uribe's ties to right-wing paramilitary groups responsible for scores of human rights abuses in Colombia. Uribe has called Morris, quote, an accomplice of terrorism for covering the rebel group, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC. The Colombian government has also tapped Morris's phone and threatened prosecution. Morris was one of 12 journalists selected for Harvard's Neiman Foundation program beginning later this year. But U.S. officials say he's been deemed permanently ineligible for a visa under the terrorist activities section of the USA Patriot Act. In media news, CNN has fired its veteran Middle Eastern editor for a Twitter message in which she says she respected the Lebanese cleric Grand Ayatollah Mohammed Hussein Fadlallah following his death last week. Fadlallah was Lebanon's most eminent Shia cleric. In her Twitter post, Octavia Nasser wrote, quote, Sad to hear of the passing of Syed Mohammed Hussein Fadlallah, one of Hezbollah's giants I respect a lot, she wrote. Nasser has worked at CNN for 20 years. Here in New York, protesters gathered outside the offices of Major League Baseball Thursday to call for the cancellation of the 2011 All-Star Game in Arizona in the wake of Arizona's anti-immigrant law. The world is watching Major League Baseball, and they need to make a choice of who they're going to stand with, the racists in Arizona or the millions of fans who support the league and come to the games and say, enough is enough, let's not reward you know, behavior that makes it dangerous for fans and players to be in Arizona. And newly released archives show President Richard Nixon and his then-National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger privately admitted to a CIA assassination attempt in Chile. Nixon and Kissinger were in the midst of a campaign to overthrow Chilean President Salvador Allende at the time of the tape in June 1971. On the recording... Kissinger and Nixon joke about a CIA attempt to kill the top Chilean army commander who supported Allende. 
The general, Rene Schneider, was killed in 1970 by right-wing Chilean military forces. In an apparent reference to Schneider and the CIA, Kitchener says, quote, when they did try to assassinate somebody, it took three attempts, and he lived for three weeks afterwards. Kissinger has long claimed the CIA broke off contact with Schneider's killers before the third attempt on his life. The U.S. helped overthrow Allende three years later, leading to a military takeover by General Augusto Pinochet. In related news, other recently disclosed archives show the Nixon administration drew up plans for a nuclear attack on North Korea. Nixon reportedly ordered nuclear bombers on standby after North Korea shot down a U.S. spy plane in 1969. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. And welcome to all of our listeners and viewers around the country and around the world. Leading environmental groups and a U.S. senator are calling on the government to pay closer attention to more than 27,000 abandoned oil and gas wells in the Gulf of Mexico and take action to prevent them from leaking even more crude following the BP disaster. The calls for action follow an Associated Press investigation that found federal regulators do not typically inspect the plugging of offshore wells or monitor for leaks years afterwards. The AP uncovered particular concern with 3,500 of the neglected wells. Regulations forcing companies to plug the wells have been routinely ignored with no government intervention. The well beneath the Deepwater Horizon was being sealed for temporary abandonment when the rig explosion that caused the disaster occurred. Overall, BP has abandoned about 600 wells. Democratic Senator Mark Udall of Colorado sent a letter to Interior Secretary Ken Salazar Wednesday, asking him whether the department agrees with AP's findings. Udall wrote, quote, We can't afford the leak that's now occurring. We certainly couldn't afford additional leaks in the future. Jeff Don is the AP reporter who co-wrote the story. He's a member of the Associated Press's national investigative team. He's joining us from Boston. We welcome you to Democracy Now!, Jeff. Let's lay out what you found. We found that there are about 27,000 abandoned wells in the Gulf of Mexico on federal lease lands underneath the Gulf, and that's more than half of the 50,000 or so oil and gas wells that have ever been drilled in the Gulf of Mexico. So there are a lot of wells out there, and we found out that on land, oil and gas wells that have been abandoned do frequently leak, even when they've been plugged correctly, and not just the ancient ones, but even wells that have been abandoned in recent decades. And we also found out that there have indeed been leaks at offshore wells that have been abandoned in both state waters and the federal regulators finally acknowledged even some in the federal waters that are a little farther out. And, Jeff, what's the difference uh, that you highlight between the uh, temporarily abandoned and the permanently abandoned wells, and what are the federal requirements, if any, to monitor the, the two types? Well, it's interesting. The companies that drill in the Gulf temporarily abandoned wells—this is a status that the federal government grants—when they are done drilling for a time, when there's a, perhaps a problem with the well, or they want to reassess the well, or they want to wait till the price of oil or gas gets higher. So they're allowed to temporarily abandon a well. We found about 3,500 of those wells in the Gulf. And they're supposed to undergo annual reviews within a year. 
the owner of the well is supposed to come back to the federal government and say, hey, we plan to reuse the well in this way, or you know what, we plan to permanently abandon it. And the pr part of the problem there is that we found wells in that temporary status for decades, since the 1950s and 1960s. And that means they don't have quite the level of safeguards that the permanently abandoned wells are supposed to have. They're not cut off all the way at the bottom of the seafloor. They don't tend to have as m many of these cement plugs that prevent oil or, wealth, or oil or gas from coming up the wells. So they're allowed to remain in that temporary status for decades. The, the rules are basically, I wouldn't say that they're, the rules are flatly ignored. I would say that the rules don't really have any teeth. The companies that abandon wells submit paperwork. Federal regulators simply accept that paperwork, accept that the job is done. They do not routinely come and inspect the work as they do in some states. And then after the well is abandoned, nobody goes back, neither the industry nor the government goes back and checks on whether these wells are leaking. And yet we know from experience with wells elsewhere that abandoned wells, a certain number of them, will eventually leak. And we know from the Deepwater Horizon, which was in the midst of a temporary abandonment job, we know that those kinds of uh, sealing jobs can fail. Jeff Dunn, can you explain what you just said? I don't think most people understand that, that it was in the midst of a temporary abandonment. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think most people understand that. The BP had been drilling um, a well there to, to look for oil. And the reports are that they had found what they were looking for, that they had found oil. And they've been clear that they were had just pumped in cement to create one of these plugs that's supposed to temporarily seal the well so that they could leave the well for a time, nobody said exactly how long, and then come back when they were ready to produce with the well. And they can actually drill back through these cement plugs and get at the hydrocarbons underneath. So they were temporarily abandoning the well, and we found the paperwork showing that they intended for the well to enter into that um, kind of limbo status where that some wells have had for decades now. And, Jeff, your report also indicates that the federal government has uh, been warned for, for the better part of two decades now. There was a GAO report back in 1989 warning of potential problems and uh, uh, possibly even disasters from these uh, plugged wells. Yeah, that, that's right. I, I think that report was in 1994, and the, the GAO, that's, of course, Congress's investigative arm, warned that these abandoned wells could pose a serious environmental problem. It even used the phrase environmental disaster, and it said the federal government ought to come up with some reasonable program of inspecting these kinds of wells. It never happened. Um, we found uh, records of the EPA saying that on land, these kinds of wells pose a significant threat to the environment, even when they've been fully depleted, because people should understand that even when a well it was used for production and it no longer is producing anything in paying quantities, it can become re-energized, re-pressurized again, sometimes from the, the aquifers that, un that are underneath that push upward, sometimes from work on other wells nearby. So these wells are, always have the potential 
to produce pressure again. And the danger, of course, is that these gas or the gas or the oil underneath the seafloor then can push up through spaces in the well and escape into the ocean. Of course, the, the oil and gas are, are toxic. They're, they're not supposed to be in the ocean, and they can affect um, the aquatic species in the oceans. And what kind of personnel did uh, MMS, uh, uh, the agency in charge of this, have devoted to monitoring these wells? So ask your question again. I'm not sure I got the sense of it. I, what, I apologize. Uh, uh, what kind of personnel did uh, MMS, uh, the agency that was supposedly in charge of, uh, uh, you know, of offshore drilling, uh, have to, uh, to monitor these plugged wells? Well, MMS, um, they're the new Bureau of Ocean Energy Management Enforcement, Regulation and Enforcement. That's their new name, where their safety... Um, uh, functions have been peeled off to this new agency. They have really very limited personnel. They have uh, um, some scores of people um, who are available for inspections in the Gulf. But remember, we're talking about thousands and thousands of active wells, either um, in some stage of drilling, typically, in the Gulf. So they really, common sense tells you that they have serious constraints on what they can look at, and they've chosen to focus on the wells that are active. Um, it's not clear that they have the resources even to look at the abandoned wells, and I think that was part of what Senator U Utah, uh, uh, Udall was getting at in his letter to Ken Salazar. Um, Udall is a member of the Energy Committee. Salazar is a fellow Coloradan uh, like uh, Senator Udall. And I think that's part of what uh, Udall was getting at when he said, uh, do you need some kinds of additional tools to keep these abandoned wells safe? Uh, this has provoked outrage among many leading environmental groups um, uh, calling on some kind of regulation. Melanie Duchin, you quote a spokeswoman for Greenpeace, said she was shell-shocked by the AP report, upset the government isn't doing a thing to make sure they weren't leaking. Jeff Down, what do you think has to be done first right now? I mean, this is quite remarkable to talk about tens of thousands of abandoned wells in the Gulf of Mexico. Well, I think part of what happened is this was a significant problem that was way off everybody's radar. The industry and the government just acted like it was a problem that didn't exist. These wells are gone and forgotten. A, a federal petroleum engineer told me they're not supposed to leak. So it was something that, that people weren't paying attention to. Even people in the industry were surprised to realize that there were so many abandoned wells out there. I think what, what Udall is driving at and what people will begin to think about is whether there might be some value for starters, at least as, at least as a first step, to consider maybe whether there should be inspections of at least some of these well sealing jobs as the companies get ready to abandon them. We know that it can be done in a practical way. California, for example, uh, does it, and they make a special effort to inspect the wells that are being abandoned offshore because they know that if anybody has to come back to an offshore well, 
it's going to be harder and more expensive. Some of these offshore jobs in the deep wells, they can be thousands of feet deep. Some of them can cost millions of dollars just to abandon the well. And part of the problem is that can't be a profit center for the companies. Jeff, one final question. Uh, I'm shocked by the number here. You have 50,000 wells over six years have been drilled in the Gulf. You're talking about about 8,000 a year. That's your, about 25 wells per day for the last 60 years have been drilled in the Gulf of Mexico. That's right. It started off, uh, of course, a little bit more slowly, and the curve kind of kind of went upward. Um, but there's been a tremendous amount of drilling. It started in the in the 1940s, and um, it's increased ever since. Um, there has been more water and more drilling in deeper water, thousand feet deep, that kind of depth, even deeper than that in recent years, and that's picking up. And part of the problem with that in this context is that it's just harder to get at the wells to abandon them when they're that deep. It can be done. It just takes a little bit more time and money um, to, to make sure that it's done right. So that's part of the concern as well, that some of these more recent wells that are now being abandoned are going to take more effort to seal properly. Jeff Don, we want to thank you for being with us, national writer for AP, member of the AP's National Investigative Unit uh, that has um, uh, reported this piece, Gulf Awash and 27,000 Abandoned Wells. We'll link to it at democracynow.org. This is Democracy Now! Back in a minute. Johnson here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. 
Well, before we uh, go on to our next story, I want to make a correction on my math over that last segment. That was about uh, 8,000 every 10 years in the number of wells uh, being drilled in the Gulf. It comes out to about three wells a day, not uh, Still 25. Still a remarkable Still number in the Gulf an, of Mexico. An, an enormous number for that long a period of time. Well, let's continue on the issue of oil. Well, we turn now to a look at a story about the oil giant BP that has received nearly no national attention. Just over three months ago, thousands of pounds of toxic chemicals began spewing into the skies from BP's massive oil refinery in Texas City. The release began on April 6th, two weeks before the explosion on the Deepwater Horizon oil rig. But it took BP weeks to even realize there was a problem. BP now estimates 538,000 pounds of chemicals escaped from the refinery over a 40-day period. The journalist Ryan Knutson of ProPublica and Frontline recently traveled to Texas City to investigate what happened. He joins us here in New York. His reporting on the story appears on the website ProPublica.org. Welcome, Ryan. Tell us what you found. Thanks, Will. Um, we sort of went at this with the question of, well, you know, in 2005, BP had a disaster at this Texas City refinery where 15 people were killed. And after that event, um, you know, BP made it said it was a transformational event. They would make a lot of changes to the or to their company. The Deepwater Horizon happened. So we wanted to examine, well, what was the lead up to that explosion and what has been the outcome of the promises to improve the company? And um, it didn't take long to start finding that there have still been a lot of issues at the Texas City refinery. And most notably, um, what I thought was interesting was uh, this was a story that was actually in the Daily News of Galveston County that on June 5th that hadn't received any attention elsewhere, that there had been this 538,000-pound release. And what happened in that circumstance was there's a, something called an ultra-cracker at this refinery, and it takes... It's an important step in the process to produce gasoline, and there's a hydrogen compressor on this ultracracker, and it broke down, and what it does is it, it captures a lot of the pollution that's emitted from this, and it, it disposes of it safely. Now, when that broke down, uh, BP had a choice. Do we shut down the ultracracker and lose an important part of producing gasoline that we'd have to buy elsewhere or maybe reformulate the gasoline, or do we send everything to a flare and burn it off into the atmosphere? Now, flares, at best case, can destroy 98% of of the chemicals that are sent to it. So 2% they know is going to release. At best case, there's also studies that show that as much as 20% of what is sent to a flare doesn't get destroyed and is uh, sent off into the atmosphere. Um, so they decided to send it to a flare, and uh, it took them 40 days to make the repairs. And once they were finished, by the time that they had um, finished analyzing all the data they had collected during the emissions event, they determined that 538,000 pounds of chemicals released into the atmosphere, most notably 17,000 pounds of benzene. Now, in the state of Texas, if you emit more than 10 pounds in a 24-hour period, you're supposed to report that as an emissions event. In this case, 425 pounds of benzene were being released uh, every 24 hours for 40 days, ultimately leading up to 17,000 pounds. And this is already a plant that has one of the uh, highest benzene release uh, rates uh, in the country, isn't it? Right. Uh, the Sierra Club uh, did a study um, that from looking at uh, reportable emissions events from 1997 to 2007 and found that the Texas City refinery was the number one releaser of benzene in the United States. Uh, BP says that it has reduced uh, its benzene uh, emissions there by, I believe, 23 percent over each year, or 50 percent from last year. So the numbers have gone down significantly uh, since 
that 2007 study was completed. But um, as um, you know, environmental advocates make the case, so there's already a lot of benzene coming from that refinery. There's a lot of benzene because in in that Texas City community because there's a couple other refineries there. So it's a, it's a and how is it possible for this release to go on for so long? You would assume that if they know that they uh, they were trying to burn uh, some of these gases off with a flare, that they would have a likelihood of a potential uh, for extra releases that they'd be monitoring on a daily basis. Right, and that's the thing that I had a hard time um, pinning down from the, the BP people I spoke with, because I know that, I mean, what they said originally is that they've got a, a, a method that's approved by Texas regulators to monitor monitor this along the way. And what they, I know that they have fence line monitors that are about six feet high. And so if they're, if it reaches any sort of threshold, then it pages officials at the refinery and they make a decision. And so apparently the fence line monitors didn't, um, didn't go off. Now the, the, the flare is 300 feet tall. So clearly this is going to kind of go out and sort of spread around. And so there's various science about what the concentration is once it reaches the ground. It depends on the wind and things what like that. What does benzene do? Well, benzene is a known carcinogen, so it doesn't uh, necessarily have immediate, you know, I don't know, that. I mean, imagine if you were in a room full of it, you'd start coughing and wheezing and that sort of thing, but uh, it's proven that it will increase uh, your cause or your likelihood of getting cancer. Especially leukemia, right? Yeah, yeah. Last year, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, fined the company, BP, $87 million for failing to address safety problems from 2005 when they killed 15 people. Yeah, um, and so yeah, in '05 they were they uh, they settled with OSHA for 21 million dollars, and they agreed to a number of improvements at the plan. And one of the the, the main things that they agreed to is they were going to hire an independent auditor to come in and do an examination of the plant, point out things that need to be improved. Um, OSHA says that the, that um, BP should have made all those improvements by the end of 2009. BP says that it was under the impression that they just needed to have the auditor point these things out by September 2009 and that they could make these improvements as they made maintenance upgrades along the way. Well, I wanted to go to the issue of the difficulty of reporting this. I want to bring in uh, Lance Rosenfeld, the freelance photographer hired by ProPublica to take pictures of BP's Texas City refinery. While on assignment, he was followed by BP security, then detained by local police. He joins us now from Austin, Texas. Lance Rosenfield, welcome to Democracy Now! Describe what happened to you. Uh, simply put, well, I was hired by ProPublica, like you said, uh, to augment the story that Ryan is speaking of. And I was taking photographs. Um, it was a two-day assignment, so I had various parts to cover, including um, basically giving a portrait of the town itself. So I had found a decorative Welcome to Texas City sign on a public highway south of town near the refinery. And um, simply put, I was taking pictures of that sign. I pulled off the shoulder like I would normally do um, of the public street, uh, walked over to the median, took the pictures, and then walked back to my car. And I was going to go back to my hotel to file the pictures, and I noticed that I was being followed by a security truck. So I needed gas anyway. I didn't feel like going, to letting this guy, you know, follow me to my hotel. So I pulled into the gas station. He continued on. Uh, so, um, so I thought really nothing of it. Then police pulled in and essentially, you know, blocked me in as if I was going to try to go anywhere and uh, got out, asked who I was, and they had got reports that I was taking photographs. And I said, yes, I'm a photojournalist. And they said, um, we need to see your pictures. And I said, well, you know, without a warrant, 
um, I don't feel like I need to show you the pictures. And um, he said, well, we can, we can sh- you can show them to us now or we can do this later with Homeland Security. Um, sort of as a, it seemed to me like, a, like some sort of additional threat. So because I was on deadline, I made the decision to show him the pictures. I just wanted to get this over with. I knew I had nothing, you know, threatening on my photographs. Um, I showed him the pictures, and he took my information. Me, at this time, the, the security guard that was following me had turned back around, pulled into the parking lot, and he was a BP security guard. Um, and the BP security guard asked for my information as well, and I, I declined because he's a corporate security guard. So he turned to the police officer who had just taken my information um, including my social security number, and um, gave, I'm not sure exactly what of the information that the police officer took, what of that he gave to the BP officer, but he gave him whatever he needed. And um, so I protested. I said I didn't understand, you know, why that was happening. I didn't, I was never on BP property. And um, and so I, I asked under what what uh, grounds was he able to share my information with a private private corporation. And um, and basically, I didn't get a, a straight answer. I just got, well, this is Homeland Security procedure. We can call Homeland Security agent Tom Robinson down here, uh, you know, if you have a problem with it. And I said, well, you know, I'm just trying to understand what, what legal grounds you have to do this um, because I was never on BP property. So uh, he said, well, I'll just call Tom Robinson. So he called Tom Robinson, who... At the time, I didn't know who he was, of course. Um, I've found out since that he's, he's a local police uh, corporal who is the liaison to the FBI and Homeland Security. So, um, and he heads the, the local Joint Terrorism Task Force um, there in Texas City and I guess maybe the region. So, um, but at the time, I didn't know who he was. They just referred to him as FBI and Homeland Security. They called Tom Robinson. He actually gave me the phone, which I thought was a little unusual, I, I, but, but my natural reaction was to take the phone. Uh, Tom Robinson uh, got on the phone and asked me what my problem was. And I, I said, well, I'm just trying to understand what, why this is happening uh, with BP getting my information. He said, you're staying there. Don't go anywhere until I get there. And um, so he gave, I gave the phone back to the police officer. He said, you know, you need to stay. And at that point, I felt like, you know, the the police officer had looked at my photographs on my camera. He had determined that there was no threat. And at this point, why was I being detained? I wasn't. It wasn't clear to me. So other than the fact that Tom Robinson wanted to come down, so he showed up uh, and basically approached me in a very you know antagonistic and aggressive manner. Um, he was shaking. He was worked up. He was loud. He was boisterous. He asked what my problem was. He said his main concern was my attitude. And, you know, all I was trying to do was find out why BP was getting my information. And, um, you know, it was his antagonistic behavior that I had a problem with. I felt like he was harassing me. The BP security guard stepped in and they both, you know, were trying to relate my activity as a photojournalist to terrorist activity, and, giving and Lance, various scenarios. Lance, was there any yes. f- a follow-up uh, by ProPublica to fi- understand why this was happening or under what basis? Because obviously, if you had been uh, with one of those automated cameras of Google in a car, just driving down the road, taking photos, <laughs> it wouldn't have been any problem, would there? I guess not. I, You know, I don't know. I mean, there, there was follow-up, and the uh, the statement that we got from BP said that they were following federal law, and there was a there was a 
um, another statement that BP followed up with, with once this sort of hit the blogosphere and airwaves, um, BP sent another um, uh, reaction to ProPublica that, that gave the actual um, federal code uh, that they were following. So, and, and so that was my answer. I mean, there was, in fact, a federal code that says um, BP is required by federal law to uh, submit a report to the NRC. Uh, my question then is, and I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer, um, but my question then is, well, if I was never on BP property and there, was, there were no infractions, I was not arrested, um, then still, why was BP getting my information? We're going to leave it there. Still unclear. And we're going to continue to follow sure. this from Texas City to the Gulf of Mexico, where new rules have been laid down for journalists, making it much more difficult for uh, photographers, videographers to get close to cleanup areas. Um, this is an issue we'll continue to cover. Lance Rosenfeld, thanks for joining us. Freelance photographer was working for ProPublica and Ryan Knutson for your piece, um, the latest piece. BP Texas refinery had huge toxic release just before before Gulf blowout. This is Democracy Now! Back in a minute. Are darker than blue by Curtis Mayfield here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We're going out to Oakland, California, where scores of people were arrested last night in protest over the verdict in the Oscar Grant shooting. Grant was the unarmed 22 year old African American man who was shot dead by a white transit officer on an Oakland, platform, uh, Oakland train platform on New Year's Day 2009. Cell phone videos of the shooting show the transit officer, Johan Mercerly, uh, pulling out a gun and shooting Grant in the back while he was laying face down on the ground on the train platform. On Thursday, a jury in Los Angeles convicted Mercerly of involuntary manslaughter, but he was acquitted on the more serious charges of second-degree murder and voluntary manslaughter. The jury included eight women and four men. No African-Americans served on the jury. Uh, Mercerly will be sentenced on August 6th. Involuntary manslaughter carries a penalty of two to four years in prison, but a sentencing enhancement for using a gun means he could face an additional three to ten years behind bars. Members of Grant's family expressed shock that Messerly was acquitted of second-degree murder. Um, uh, Grant's mother, Wanda Johnson, spoke outside the courthouse. That the system has let us down. But God will never, ever right. let us down. Though the system has failed us, though we fight continually, but 
You know what? One thing I know, that the race is not given to the swift nor to the strong, but to the one who endures till the end. And as a family and as a nation of African-American people, we will continue to fight for our equal rights in this society. The scripture tells us that the rich bribe the judges, and certainly we have seen the judges be bribed. Certainly we have seen how this judicial system has worked on such a case as this. We couldn't even get six hours of deliberation. And we have a new juror who came in who had not even probably reviewed the evidence with the other jurors. But the, the jury had already had their minds tainted. And so I believe, I still remember what Dr. King said, that he had a dream. I believe that one day, as a nation of people, that you guys will not look at us according to the color or content of our skin, but that we will be treated right as a people. And my son was murdered. He was murdered. He was murdered. He was murdered. My son was murdered. And, there, and the law has not held the officer accountable the way that he should have been held accountable. And, and I look at this, and I just say, like my brother said, to any other family who goes through this, do not give up. Do not give up. Even though the system will fail us and let us down, God will never fail us, nor will he let us down. And I will trust in him until I die. Wanda Johnson, the mother of Oscar Grant. The family's attorney, John Burris, also spoke to the media after the verdict. Now, of course, we feel that the involuntary manslaughter conviction is better than no conviction at all. We do recognize and appreciate that there, are, there probably is some historical significance that I, in my long history, being involved in police matters since 1979 and well over 30 homicides involving the police, I've never had a case where an officer was convicted of any crime against an African-American male. So in that sense, it's a small victory. But it does not, in and of itself, fairly and accurately represent that the system works. But it cannot work in a situation where a person is killed with his hands behind his back, with an officer over him, claiming that he has seen something, and that becomes an involuntary manslaughter. Burris, attorney for Oscar Grant's family. John Hamilton was in Oakland yesterday and filed this report. The streets and highways leading out of Oakland were packed with cars early Thursday afternoon as jurors announced a verdict in the Johannes Meserly murder trial was imminent. By 4 p.m. when the jury rendered its verdict, much of downtown Oakland appeared to be a boarded-up ghost town. At the Alameda County Courthouse, District Attorney Nancy O'Malley said she was disappointed but that the verdict was a partial success. The jury also found true that Johannes Mesley used his gun. And that finding itself indicates to us that the jury completely rejected Mesley's claim that he had actually been grabbing his taser. As you are well aware that we believe that Johannes Mesley was guilty of the crime of murder, we presented the case that way, we presented the evidence that way, and the jury found otherwise. Now, 
few blocks away near Oakland City Hall, a crowd of many hundreds gathered calling Meserly's conviction on involuntary manslaughter charges far short of justice. I'm afraid, I'm scared. Um, this is just another reminder in my life, in my 29 years on this earth, that my worth to this society is not that much. I'm saddened for the family of Oscar Grant and, and other families who have uh, witnessed or been a part of or victimized by certain uh, and similar violence to Oscar Grant, because he's not the only one. And unfortunately, this happens in a lot of different circumstances. I think we kind of expected that something like this would happen because there's a long history of police abusing minorities and people that don't have much money, put it frankly, and then getting slapped on the wrist. So when the trial got moved to L.A., we kind of figured something was going to happen that would be more lenient than a typical murder charge. And to hear involuntary manslaughter, it's a slap, to me it's a slap in the face to specifically African American men in this country, but also humanity in general. Uh, Michael Vick did two years for a dog being killed on his property. Johan Meserly is going to do two to four years for murdering a man execution style. There's something wrong with the picture in my, in my frame of reference. Much of Johannes Meserly's defense centered on the contention that the former transit officer thought he was drawing a taser weapon rather than a firearm when he shot and killed Oscar Grant. Oakland City Councilwoman Rebecca Kaplan. Well, this horrible crime and horrible tragic loss of life occurred in part because people policing BART were carrying both tasers and guns. And guns in that kind of small enclosed environment that you have in a BART car are very dangerous. And I think it's worth asking the question whether they really should be carrying guns or not. What made Thursday's verdict of involuntary manslaughter so hard to swallow for many Oakland residents were the multiple video cameras that recorded Oscar Grant's killing. West Oakland community activist and artist Kat Brooks. I cannot reconcile what I saw on the video with, 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 with the verdict today. How many angles do you need to look at that tape to understand that that was murder? There were, had to be at least a thousand people out here tonight. They're in Los Angeles mobilized tonight. We all know it's murder. Across the country, we know it's murder. You know, but there's nothing new in America. Black and brown babies have been being killed by, by law enforcement for, for hundreds of years. Before law enforcement, it was, it was slave owners. It's the history of this country. Um, what the miracle of this was is that finally, for the first time, a police officer was put on trial um, for murdering an unarmed civilian. The tragedy of it is, is that black and brown people were told yet one more time that their lives mean nothing in this country. As hundreds filed out of downtown Oakland, many others remained, shadowed by an increasing number of riot police. I would like people to express themselves but try to be peaceful about it. I don't think it helps us to break windows of small business owners in downtown Oakland. I know everybody's mad and every, a lot of people feel like it was not the right punishment, but we have to come together as a community on a regular basis, not just when something bad happens, not just when it's a tragedy. As the sun drew low, police put on gas masks and declared an unlawful assembly. Soon, anger over the Meserly verdict boiled over as demonstrators smashed windows and set small fires.
the overwhelming majority of people behave very appropriately. And, you know, it's unfortunate that we're a handful of people throwing things, but I want to make it clear the overwhelming majority of people here have been behaving peacefully and appropriately and deserve to be respected for this call for justice. At least one woman was injured when a police car backed into her. Dozens of downtown businesses had their windows smashed. A few suffered looting. Police made scores of arrests with an exact number yet unknown. We've been pushed back as far as we can go. You have some people back there who have been barricaded and trapped in, and they're attempting to get us to leave. They're pushing us all, and they don't want us here because we're speaking truth. Half these, these police officers don't even live out here. They traveled here. They traveled here, but we live here every day. I live here every day. I work here. I go to school here. Take care of kids here. I ain't going nowhere. So they're going to have to break me down. Simple as that. No justice, no peace. For Democracy Now!, I'm John Hamilton in Oakland. Again, the transit officer, Johannes Messerly, faces two to four years in prison. But a sentencing enhancement for using a gun means Messerly could face an additional three to ten years behind bars. He'll be sentenced on August 6th. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. Juan? Well, on Wednesday night, Wells Fargo announced it will stop handing out subprime loans and close down 638 Wells Fargo financial offices. Until very recently, the bank was at the forefront of subprime lending in poor and middle-income communities of color across the country and was sued last year by Illinois and the city of Memphis, Tennessee and Baltimore, Maryland for deceptive and discriminatory mortgage lending. But Wells Fargo and other big mainstream banks didn't invent this kind of predatory lending. They were inspired by an industry that has long exploited the working poor. It's an industry that has become a fixture across America. Mom-and-pop pawn shops, payday loan brokers, rent-to-own stores, and storefront check-cashing operations. These might be small companies, but our next guest argues that they invented the subprime loan. Best-selling author, former New York Times reporter Gary Rivlin, says their rapacious practices laid the foundation for powerful mainstream banks to get into the subprime business and turn it into a multibillion-dollar enterprise. He calls this the poverty industry. He wrote the book Broke USA, From Pawn Shops to Poverty, Inc., How the Working Poor Became Big Business. It's just out. Welcome to Democracy Now! Lay it out for us, Gary. So what really struck me are the profits being made here. We've always had a poverty industry. Pawn shops go back centuries. Check cash have been around since the 1930s. But what's changed is you used to be able to get a big house, drive a Cadillac rich. But starting in the 80s and 90s, with Wall Street's help, with the help of the big banks, with the Wells Fargo's of the world, uh, suddenly this became huge business. And people figured out how to take old-line businesses like check cashing and pawn shops, take them public on Wall Street and make tens of millions, hundreds of millions uh, of dollars. There's seven publicly traded check cashing companies. At the same time, we saw all these new inventions. The subprime mortgage came back, came around because of deregulation in the 1980s. In the late 1980s, you started seeing subprime credit cards. And the banks saw the amount of money the subprime entrepreneurs uh, were making selling these credit cards. They were making two or three times the rate on their subprime customers as they were on their regular customers. So, of course, the J.P. Morgan chases the world. The big banks got into the subprime credit card. And then, finally, you saw 
all these new inventions. The payday loan uh, came around in the early 1990s. These instant tax mills, which you see in working-class communities all around the country, you know, get your tax refund today or tomorrow rather than waiting two or three weeks. And, oh, by the way, you're going to pay a triple-digit interest rate, typically, uh, to get your money that quickly. Really preying on people so desperate for their money that they'll pay a huge premium to get it tomorrow rather than waiting the two or three uh, weeks. So, really, I just was struck that this was a Wall Street phenomenon. In the last 20 or 30 years, these have become multi-billion-dollar industries. Well, the, the payday uh, loans in, in particular, they basically did not exist before the mid-1990s in most places around the country. How did they develop and grow so rapidly? So, so I, I really wanted to find the—I call them the pioneers of subprime. I really wanted to find the people who invented these various products to hear— to hear their side of the story. So I went to Cleveland, Tennessee, where Alan Jones, the man who invented the modern-day petty loan industry, uh, is. And I spent a couple of days with him. And, of course, he sees himself as noble. I mean, he's uh, a payday loan, for those who don't know. It's a, it's a quick cash advance against your next paycheck, against a Social Security check, against an unemployment check, two, three hundred, four hundred dollars You don't have the money now. You need to fix your car and stuff. And, you know, in theory, it makes sense. What do you do if you don't have a rich uncle? You don't have a credit card. You need to fix your car. You need a new refrigerator because it broke. The problem is that the person who's so desperate uh, for a loan today that they'll pay fees that work out to an annual interest rate of 400 percent or more, those people who are so desperate today, how in two weeks when the loan is due, are they going to have the extra $300 they borrowed plus the $45 in fee on top of their regular bills? So you see a cycle. You see people get stuck. And even the industry confesses that the average person takes two or three months to pay back one of these loans. So instead of $15 for every hundred, you're sometimes paying $100 for every $100 uh, you loan. And, you know, the academics, the consumer rights uh, groups, they find that the average person takes out 13, 12 or 13 of these a year. That's half the year. You have a loan that has an effective interest rate of 400 percent. One-fifth of the people have it 21 or more of these loans a year. So if you're borrowing $500 and you can't pay it back, you're effectively paying $2,000 in fees for that same $500. And these are the people who could least afford to pay those kind of rates. Uh, the payday lenders say this is an emergency product. What did you find during your time spent with these major chains? You know, I, I went into this thinking, a payday loan, it's, it's a necessary evil. It's a lot of money, but it's an emergency loan. What really struck me is the aggressiveness with which they sell these things. They're creating a lot of a lot of the demand. The big chains, or some of the big chains, if you haven't been in their store in 30 days, 60 days, they will call you and try to induce you uh, to an emergency loan, but they're actually calling you to get you in. Most of the chains, the first loan free, it reminds me of what drug dealers do, like get you, kind of hook you with that first loan, and then you're stuck because it's going to take you a long time to get out. They upsell you. You come in, I, I need $200 uh, quickly. Well, you know, you qualify for $500, and they'll repeat over and over again, you can have $500. So again, it's their techniques more than the product itself uh, that bothers me. And of course, the, the, the fees they charge. And uh, one of the big figures, Sandy Weil, a uh, big, big executive in the merger of Travelers and Citigroup. Can you talk about uh, his involvement in yeah, this he, industry? He, he, he's the king of poverty. Inc. You know, he, he was kicked out of American Express at around the age of 50 and wanted to make his comeback. And so he bought this third-rate consumer finance 
company, they make loans, you want to buy a refrigerator, you want to buy furniture, they'll finance it for 15, 18, 20, 22 percent, huge fees. It's a really lucrative business. And they start getting into the subprime mortgages. Uh, they could. With, with deregulation, they could charge those kind of rates on, on mortgages. And so he used the cash he was generating from this company to buy travelers and, of course, eventually bought Citigroup. So in a way, Citigroup is the king of the subprime uh, industry. They've helped fund some of the businesses I've been talking about, Pawn, etc. They were one of the lead um, writers of subprime mortgages. And, of course, they did the Wall Street thing of securitizing these, slicing and dicing them and selling them off. Gary, we have to wrap up here, but we're going to continue this online mm -hmm. at democracynow.org and talk about some of the heroes and the mm -hmm. battle against the predators. Um, Gary Rivlin's book is called Broke USA, From Pawn Shops to Poverty, Inc., How the Working Poor Became Big Business. That does it for our broadcast. Democracy Now! produced by Mike Berkshire, for the producer, Armate Angela Kamath, Steve Martinez, Nicole Salazar, Hani Masood, Robbie Karen. We're headed to Haiti for the sixth month anniversary of the earthquake. If you have ideas for stories, write to stories at democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. Democracy Now! is a listener-supported grassroots global news hour. You make it possible when you donate at democracynow.org. Thank you so much. You are now. One, two, two, three, five. You are now, are now, are now. Tuned in to the Fusebox Radio Broadcast with DJ Fusion and John Judah. <laughs> You're as good as they say you are. Syndicated worldwide to bring real black radio back to the masses. Ladies and gentlemen, you are now witnessing Fusebox Radio. Checking out Fusebox Radio with John Judah. And this is your truly big guru, the icon. Now, along with the United States Marine Color Guard to sing the national anthem, famed recording artist Marvin Gaye. 
In the lawn to the Nina Simone Had a little Ray Charles and Louis Armstrong While as Rick James, he was in his own zone It was known, Bob Marley was made for the rosters Well, most of the mobsters were banging Sinatra Even high class people like lawyers and doctors Had they eyes with haze to the Isaac Hayes I banged Jimi Hendrix out of the Jeep While premieres on the MP banging the beat I've been in love with Christina since the minute that I've seen her No one mean her with the vocal, baby, she a real singer Let's go! Discovered by our soul. Oh, oh, oh. 
check it out. You better you take it there. Yeah, yeah. Fox Radio.
Fox Radio. You are now listening to Fusebox Radio, bringing the best of hip-hop and soul music, news, and commentary from all over.
right here on the Fuse Box Radio.
boys and girls, as I travel through this great big country of ours, this U.S. of A., and being on the road as much as I do, I try to listen to a lot of the radio stations. It's amazing how many KISS or V-103 stations there are. Jesus Christ, did people run out of call letters or what? Come on. Anyway, most of the stuff on the radio is so sad. It's a drag. One of the reasons could be because every song is about... Guessed it, huh? Love. 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 L-O-V-E. What the world needs now is not another love song. Now dig, check this out. The love that's professed in these songs is shaky anyway. It's a lustful, selfish, into the world love. And the lyrics, <laughs> have you tried to listen to the lyrics? You heard them all before. My love is higher, fire and desire. Let's stay together forever, despite all types of weather, even a hurricane. In fact, I'd spend a winter in Chi-Town. And you know that's cold. Ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to your good stuff. You know it's rough. Emotion, devotion, love, 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 sex, 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 booty, 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 titty, titty, titty. Forget about the courting, let's get married. At the chapel of love, you got me crying, you got me dying. My heart is aflame, and then you came into my life of strife. But now I can go on. You give your love, my dove, my pet, my love, my Sharia more, my little cheese Danish from juniors. Oh, give me more, more, more on the flow, flow, flow. Oh, oh, oh. It's been a long time. I had given up hope. What a dope, like soap on a rope. I went for the okey dope. You know this is true. He blew. L-O-V-E-T-I-S-E-X I'll be a happy chappy, also nappy I get the shivers down to my livers Other guys just feed your lines But I take you to Mickey D's Baby, I'm on my knees Please, baby, please But this ain't that song, it's getting long My nature is rising to the horizon As strong as an ox like a Clorox box You're a bad mama jamma you already know that just point me in the right direction only you give me that serious connection get out of my dreams and into my car because wouldn't you like to ride my mercedes-benz it's paid for if not i also got a pink cadillac i got it like that my love is brewing my love is stewing could it be yes it be like a pencil to a pen like a chicken to a hen i could have been if you could have would have should have love won't let me wait Come on, baby, I'm double parked. You're so fine, blow my mind every time. Stop on a dime, just in time.
right here on the Fuse Box Radio. I love you. Let me spend the rest of my life with you tonight. If you don't, I'll just roll up into a ball and just die. Won't wash, won't eat, won't even go to work if you don't love me, dude. I'll even give up my four-season tickets to the New York Knicks courtside. And you know how I feel about basketball. That's gotta be L-O-V-E. Let me call you my own. Shower me with your cones. Let them rain down on me like a monster. Let your love come down, flow down, drown me in that stuff. I want to swim in it. Do 20 laps. The breaststroke is my specialty. Jew. 
Jewish person. Yes, I can prove it. Watch this. Look at it. Hava, Nagila, Wait a minute, wait a minute. Money? Come here. How? I'm very entertaining. I got special talents. I'll show you. Look out. For the native shim sham sand dance. Hey, what country are you from? Ethiopia. What part? 125th Street. <laughs> I'm gonna sign him up. And that's the Ethiopian Shim Sham. Put it there, pal. I'm Comicus, stand-up philosopher. Who are you? I'm Josephus. And I'm the main course at the Coliseum. The main course at the Coliseum. <laughs> Say hello to some friends of mine. This is my agent, Swiftest Lazarus. Hey, a good man. And this is Miriam. She's a Vestal Virgin. <laughs> Hi. 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 Seize him! Oh, seize this, Honkus. No! Don't ever say that to the cops! Seize him! Right here on the Fuse Box Radio.
Yo, you checking out Fusebox Radio with John Judah. And this is your truly big guru, the icon.
Voices of Crime.
right here on the Fuse Box Radio. That's all the time we have tonight. Join us next time. Good night.